I'm happy to say I've worked with, you know, more than a dozen where we, you know, built out the beginning of the team. And it's like giving birth, right? <laughs> you see it grow. And now, you know, I was trying to calculate how much they're all worth. They're worth billions of dollars. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm super excited to be joined today by Gail Audibert. Gail has been a recruiter since 1984 and has run her own firm, Gail Audibert Associates, for 34 years, specializing in commercial insurance. She's a member of the Pinnacle Society and currently the VP and President-Elect for 2023. She's a former president of the National Insurance Recruiting Association and its current education chair. And she's also served on the board of the Connecticut Association of Personnel Services for close to 20 years. Gail, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking. Gail, how did you hear about me? Well... Um, as a part of the Pinnacle Society, so many people that I've spoken to over the past have posted that they've been on your podcast. So I listened to it and I thought it was fantastic. Um, so I also started to recommend it to my daughter, who's a, who owns her own recruiting firm. And anybody who is new in the business, I'm like, you have to listen to this. This is really going to give you an education from, you know, a fantastic trainer, but all of the best recruiters in the country. And so many people I know on Pinnacle have spoken on a variety of topics. So we don't have the opportunity get to get that. I mean, we can listen to Tony Robbins, but that's all motivational. <laughs> so it's nice to hear just about our industry. Fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. And so we found each other on LinkedIn somehow after that. And Yeah, I send you a fan note, like a fan oh, letter. Oh, right. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, thank you. And uh, we got chatting, I think, because your husband was making a trip to Scotland or something. Am I getting that right? He was. He was going to be in Scotland just at the time that I, you and I were you know, emailing each other back and forth. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Awesome. How was his trip, by the way? Loved it. Well, cool. I think he wants to go back, so we may come visit. Yeah. This time, <laughs> look me up. Uh, don't yeah. don't come over all this way and, and uh, you know, right. not... Uh, have lunch yes, or dinner local. with me. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay, cool. I'm so happy that you're here. And I'd like to start, I usually, I like to hear people's origin stories. So take me back to 1984 and how you got into recruiting. <laughs> well, 1984, I graduated from college. Okay. I got a job as a telephone salesperson. Okay. Um, sold equipment for three months until they fired me and told me I really wasn't any good at sales, huh. which was devastating. <laughs> but I, I couldn't understand the equipment. You know, that was the thing. And you had to carry this huge box and walk around. So um, after crying in my, uh, my bedroom for about a month, um, I went out and I got a job as a recruiter. I applied for a number of other sales positions because I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I got a job as a recruiter. Um, and I think that the experience of getting fired makes you realize that you're going to work harder than everyone else. So I just became a sponge. So I would read everything I could. I would, um, you know, I would listen to hours as my boss, everybody else didn't want to listen to him. I did everything he told me to do. And within the first year, I was the top biller, you know, nine months later. Um, and I got to go to a NAPS conference in San Diego. And the keynote speaker was Brian Tracy. And, you know, I had more humble beginnings, right? We weren't, you know, I'd never flown in a plane and I'd never, you know, gone on, you know, a European vacation or skiing, didn't own a car. Um, and here Brian Tracy was saying, you could do whatever you want to do in life. Just set a goal. And I bought his tapes and it was transformative. I must have listened to the psychology of achievement about a thousand times. Um, and it, it almost is what guided my life is, you know, have a positive attitude and be open um, and, and self-actualize what you want in life. So I was bound to do it and I did. Wow. That's a fantastic story. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for sharing that. And it's, it's really interesting that I, I feel like maybe Brian Tracy isn't as well known these days uh, but I've listened to the psychology of achievement as well over and over. Um, and Brian Tracy is actually from, he lives in America, but he is from Prince Edward Island, which is a mm -hmm. tiny province neighboring my province of Nova Scotia, where I'm originally from. And uh, he, 
I know a couple of different people who know him personally. And when I, it's, it, it, I think it was 2008, I wrote a, like a manual, training manual, an ebook called, mm-hmm. um, it, what, what the heck was it called? It was like recruiting in a recession, how to increase your sales in a soft economy or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to him for review like via, I, and I just said, look, I sent it to his assistant and I said, you don't know me, but I'm friends with this person, this person. And would you be kind enough to read my you know, book and write me a review? And he did. I was blown away uh, to get this email back from his assistant saying like with the quote that I could put on my book. So um, that's my Brian Tracy story, but I've never yeah. met him in person like, uh, like you have. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, yeah. Twice. I bought oh, yeah? a table so I could meet him. <laughs> and shake my hand and get my picture taken with them because all of his principles, it's not just sales, it's life. Right. Um, but it, it's, it was so important at an early stage in my life, in my career to be able to have someone who made you say, yeah, you can do it. It doesn't matter. You know, you, all those self-limiting beliefs that we have. So when I was 25, you know, my partner, um, at the time had worked, you know, in recruiting also. And she says, do you want to go out on your own? And I was like, no, <laughs> I couldn't do it. And then I thought, why not? Like, why not? And, you know, 34 years later, um, you know, I've been on my own. She's left the business, but I've been on my own forever. And it's worked out wonderfully. Now, I've lived through four recessions um, and have learned in each of those experiences. They all, all haven't been smooth, but each time you just have to remember you're going to get through it because there's ups and downs. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Something you've said to me before is about how you have designed your business around your family. Could you speak on that a little bit? Because <clears throat> to be a Pinnacle Society member and to be a top producer for all these years, um, most of us would assume that you just like work super hard, you're like working incredibly long hours, and <laughs> that you, you know, have made a lot of sacrifices to your business and to your profession. Um, So could you give us your sort of philosophy and your values around that? When I started my own business, I did it because I wanted to have a child. And in 1988, there was no such thing as um, flexible work schedules, remote work. I didn't get, you know, maternity leave. (laughs) Like I had a baby and I, in two weeks, through a cesarean, I took the baby with me to work, my daughter, Emily, um, and, you know, drove an hour and got on an elevator with her and, you know, and fed her while I was working. There was no such thing as that. But I knew that I wanted to create an environment where I could, you know, raise a family. And, you know, my husband was an accountant, so he worked long hours. So I just worked around my kids. But as they got older, especially, you know, you think it's easy when they're young, but then they get older and there's dance and soccer and football and snow days and sick days. And I didn't want to miss any of that because I was working. So I didn't, you know, I I think at best when they were little, someone always had an ear infection, a fever, you know, a class outing. So I worked somewhere around three to four days a week. Um, And then I started working five days a week again. Everybody said, I thought you had Fridays off because I took it off for so long. I'm like, I might as well just take Fridays off. Because no one thinks I'm at work anyway. Oh, perfect. But you my trained cl- your clients, <laughs> candidates, and colleagues that you're not around on Fridays. That's good. Right, right. So, um, you know, I just would go in as much as I can. But when I get in, I would just work. Um, it, it, it was a problem, of course, when we started on PCs because the internet came along. There was no internet. There was no personal computer when I first started. Um, we'd mail things out. So I got really good at selling, you know, on the phone because you don't want to have to send the resume in the mail because you knew that was just a way to get rid of you. Um, and you know, technology is, makes things very efficient, but it also is very distracting, Mm. right? You can get lost, um, in all the things that you don't know how to do or just the ability of information in front of you. Um, so we've worked really hard at, you know, trying to keep my, keep me focused, um, while at work. So in those 20 to 25 hours that I'm in there, that I'm actually doing something. Ama- okay. So now these days you're working 20 to 25 hours, but has that been, were there periods 
previously? Were you working 40 hours or? I would make believe I worked 40 hours, <laughs> but okay. yeah, th- there was never a week that I didn't have to take a day off. Right. 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 I, I could schedule a Thursday. I stopped taking Fridays off because I knew one other day of the week I couldn't go in. So I would say I, I'm a consistent four day a week worker. Okay. Maybe three. All right. So three to four. And uh, so what's incredible to me is how highly productive you are in 20 to 25 hours a week, Gail. So teach me your secret. I need to learn this because um, I feel like I, yeah, this is what I need. I work too long for the um, results that that I'm achieving. So Talk me through your mindset. You're famous. And your what do you mean? <laughs> you're famous. Um, well, right now, you know, you're making me work harder because I'm using you as a coach at the moment. After I've listened to you, I just had to. I had to get all of you and Leanne's knowledge. So I am working much harder right now. Promise. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't. I don't really know. You know what the trick is, other than you know, I. I. I probably don't waste a lot of time on things that I don't think are necessary on candidates um, that I don't think that I can place Mm -hmm. on positions. You know, I start working on a job and as soon as I think it's unplaceable, I just drop it. Yep. You know, I'll, you know, I just, you know, we'll call the company and say, I can't work on this. It's not gonna, it's not gonna fly. Um, And, you know, I think I have a, a, a very strong, um, database of candidates or people that I know that I've worked with over the years that make it much easier for me, you know? So the, the longer you stay in the business, you have to get better because you know, so many people, that's um, true. It's that personal, it's that personal relationship that you have with them. Um, that makes all the difference. It's not always the new person. It's the second and third time you've talked to a person that it really begins to develop. Absolutely. Well, look, um, there's a few, I want to just tease out some of the success factors here, Gail. So number one is it seems like because you wanted to also be available for your kids and not miss out on any of those activities or sick days or snow days or whatever, you just had to achieve the work within the time available, right? So uh, I think in some ways, you know the I can't remember what the name of the principle is where the work expands to fill the amount of time available. Mm-hmm. That's me all over. Like I just, uh, but so coming back to you, <clears throat> you only had twenty five or thirty hours, so you made it work. But then the second part you said is that the longer you do this, it should get easier because you a you've got a bigger network and you've got personal relationships with the people in your industry. Now that only applies though, if people work in a specific industry, right? Because if Mm -hmm, you're a generalist, then it doesn't really give the opportunity to build that database and those personal relationships where you're speaking to people multiple times over the, you know, uh, over the years. Uh, How did you choose insurance as your area? Um, The, I had been working at a the job that I got hired for, there was a person who had been working in the insurance desk. They didn't primarily engineering and, but they had, you know, someone who was working the insurance desk and I think he died. Oh <laughs> so goodness. they said, we'll just give you his files. Okay. Um, and I started working in the area, but insurance in the Hartford area, um, Hartford was, you know, considered the insurance capital of the world. And at the time we used phone books. So you only worked geographically. We did, they didn't even want a long distance phone call made. Um, <laughs> it's funny cause my kids don't know what long distance phone calls are cause right. there is no such thing anymore. But, um, you know, so we had to work in the area. So I had to go deep in insurance in a variety of areas as, um, as time moved on, a lot of the people I placed in roles now became managers, and presidents of companies, or they would start new companies and they would call me up because they knew me. Um, and I found that, you know, what I did is I started to work into the specialty niches of insurance. So instead of working with this lot with these large companies that had 10,000 people and they were now building talent acquisition departments, <clears throat> I, I started to focus on 
the specialty niche companies where I knew that people migrated to because the work was more complicated and it was more um, enriching and it was more, you know, um, profitable. So, you know, a lot of companies started and I'm happy to say I've worked with, you know, more than a dozen where we, you know, built out the beginning of the team and it's like giving birth, right? (laughs) You see it grow. And now, you know, I was trying to calculate how much they're all worth. They're worth billions of dollars. Wow. That's cool. And, you know, they'd come to me, some of them, you know, with an ID on a napkin and they hadn't given notice yet. Um, But it's because they trusted me. And, you know, I, I think the best compliment I ever got from someone was that I was just normal. Like you're just a normal person. I'm not really salesy, right? That dating back to the say, telephone sales, um, but it was just more like having a conversation and figuring out what they wanted and being honest. Gail, those building trust. You must, if you haven't already, write up some case studies about companies that you've helped to build and, and, and grow from inception to the point that they are now worth billions of, of dollars. I think that is just a, an amazing story to be able to tell um, in terms of your impact and your credibility in your, in your space. So, mm-hmm. so you've got, uh, number one, your hours were constrained around your family. So number two, you worked in a specific industry uh, and have grown that network and those relationships over time to the point where they're really personal relationships, even more than business relationships. Um, what else do you think has been a success factor, though? Because there are other recruiters who um, work in a niche, but that, or as we say, niche, um, who haven't had your level of financial success, let's say. So there must be more to it, Gail. Well, if you were to ask the people that work with me, I they, I think they'd say it was kind of my attitude. Okay. Right? Like I give myself about a couple of minutes to be upset about something um, or when you have a bad month um, or, you know, when you have a uh, an experience where you have a number of fall-offs. And I just kind of try to quickly, you know, divert and make it right. Um, and... I think you also have to accept accountability, right? Like, okay, things aren't going well and you get mad at a candidate or mad at a client, but then you go, okay, what did I do wrong? Mm, (laughs) And then you fix it and you move on. And if you see a pattern, you fix it and you move on. And I kind of will jump wholeheartedly into those things. Um, But it really is, you know, like you can do it, you can fix it, you know, optimism, um, you know, bad times are followed by really great times. Just like the recession right now, like there really isn't a recession. It's a a weird thing, right? Because we don't have, you know, high unemployment, but we have this, you know, inflationary period and people go, well, you know, they're getting all depressed because it's really impacting their business. And I'm like, ah, why don't you just ignore it? (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, and just keep working because everybody else is not doing anything. And if you just pick up the slack while they're, you know, telling you that business is bad, you'll get all the business and they won't. So some of my best years were like recessionary years, 2008, 2009, were my highest billing productions because everybody else stopped working and I didn't because I just, you know, I was like, oh, there's no, there's no recession right now. Video interviewing has been part of mainstream recruitment for over a decade now, but have you figured it out yet? Video interviewing certainly looks good as part of your recruitment service. It gives you the appearance of being a cutting edge recruitment business owner on the front line of technology, but is it paying its way Are you getting more new business, more repeat business because you're using video interviewing? Or is it starting to look more like a financial drain on your recruitment business? Our sponsor and trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. Their video interviewing is just one part of a complete suite of recruitment tools, so you don't need to spend a fortune on yet another tech platform. Everything you need is included in one package. Additionally, they provide training for your recruitment firm to make sure you're using the technology to the best possible effect for your existing clients, as well as how to use it to attract new clients. If you're thinking of investing in video interviewing, don't take another step until you've requested your free demonstration from iIntro. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retain to book your free consultation. See for yourself how to use video interviewing to get a true return on your investment. 
That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Let's talk about this because, um, in fact, that was just in the news today as of when we're recording that the UK is now officially in a recession, uh, according to the definition of two consecutive quarters of uh, GDP um, contracting rather than growing. And um, yeah, people are anxious, worried about it. And you've survived at least, I think, what, four recessions? And mm-hmm. um, I've been through a couple myself. So talk to me more about how those were some of your best years. What what were you doing in order to create that that result? Well, in I'll, I'll say that it, it, I think it was 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, my partner decided that she quietly quit the business, right? She wanted to start a radio show. <laughs> wow. I think that was the year. Okay. And, you know, so th- the business was struggling. I was handling it, you know, on my own. You know, we'd, you know, had a, a big staff at the time and we'd, it, we'd gotten in, you know, some debt because of a lapse of, you know, placements. Um, so, you know, I put, at the time I was managing more than I was recruiting and, you know, I put my big girl recruiting pants on. I'm like, all right, well, I'll pull us out of this and recruited, 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 um, you know, out of absolute necessity, recognize that I loved that much more than managing, you know, I already mothered children. I didn't like mothering, you know, people in the office. Um, but, you know, I saw that, you know, some of my clients were beginning to contract. So I, you know, was in bed one night worrying about it. And then I had an idea and I wrote something up to present to one of my clients because I knew that they were going to be expanding. And I ran it by, you know, a recruiter friend of mine because I'm involved with all these associations and said, what do you think? He goes, okay, that's an RPO. And I'm like, ah, what's an RPO? (laughs) And he goes, recruitment process outsourcing. So I pitched it to my client And, you know, they gave me 40 jobs, you know, to fill, you know, paid up front and they paid us out. And I said, listen, you don't have to pay me all at once. Um, You can pay me if you need to fill it over two months. You can you you can charge me over the course of 12 to 18 because whenever they're building something, the cost of that upfront expense, you know, drives them crazy. And I heard that from my husband, who's the CFO. Right. And he said, you know, just, you know, eliminate their burn rate um, so that they pay you over time. And you're just more of a working partner with them in this process. So, um, you know, that year that pulled me out of, you know, a difficult time. And every time, you know, we had a dip in in the economy, that's what I went after is you hear those opportunities, but you didn't pay attention to them. You know, you might hear about it every day, but you don't want all that business. And you know, when times were slower, um, I would approach clients that I knew that they were going to be expanding or growing and pitch that. Um, and I think that, you know, the biggest difference is paying attention to their finances, not yours. Um, so I didn't have to reduce my fees, but I just let them pay me over time. I didn't need it all at once. Right. So then I had this steadying income for a year and then I had this steadying income. I, you know, I worked really hard the first two months to fill all those roles. And then for the next 10, I was getting a salary from that company and being able to do recruiting with the others. So, okay, built on this top is of that. fabulous. This is fabulous stuff, Gail. So <clears throat> take me back to the time you're you because you kind of skimmed over it. You had a you had a business partner and you had a staff, but the the business partner then wasn't pulling her weight. I I'm guess reading between the lines is what you're saying because you said quietly quitting, which is a I don't think was even she a took term a, back she then. took a long term leave of absence. Okay, you know to do a radio show, but um you know and that was when I was working you know to try to pay off the debt yes. that we incurred by okay. paying all the staff. Um, and she didn't want to, you know, I had to work for free because you always have to pay your team first. Right. Um, and I wanted to, you know, bring all that up. Uh, that's never happened again. You know, now, now I know you always keep, you know, at least a year's worth of expenses in the bank. But at the time we were building and growing. So we didn't have that. We had a credit line. So. Yes. Okay. So then in 2008, did you have a team back then? And how did that? Mm-hmm. So what did you do with all these people? Did they have to go or? Um, I actually, I didn't, I didn't lay anyone off, but they slowly, um, there are people, yeah, I think there was like, I had two gentlemen who I loved. Right. And I said, okay, it's a recessionary time again. And I said, it's going to be great, but you know, it's either Franks and beans 
or steak. And this is one of those Franks and beans times where you got to <laughs> gut through it and work really hard until we get through the next hump. So you're more than welcome to stay or you could flip to the other side for security. And they both had young families. And I said, you know, you do what's best for you. But this is what recruiting is. You came during a good time, but they're not all good times. You have to go like this. It's like the stock market, but you don't take your money out. <laughs> if you keep it in over the long haul, you'll do good. Um, but not everybody's built for that in the recruiting industry. They bemoan the low times and you have to just re- remember there's going to be a bounce back of a high one. It, absolutely. Great perspective mm-hmm. on that. And when you say the Franks and beans and you have to gut through it, what what does that mean to you? Because however you described it to them, I guess they decided they didn't have the appetite for that. So what, in your mind, what does that involve? New client development, you know, cold call recruiting, um, you know, not worrying about the same old clients, but going out and find new sources of business because certain, even in the insurance industry, which is sort of recession proof, um, you know, they're going to have blips where they're not going to have as much need, right? Mm -hmm. We went through a big technological revolution where a lot of positions were eliminated because they were able to automate them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of positions will still, you know, continue due to AI get, um, will be gone, but that doesn't mean that there's not other areas of the company that then have to expand, right? There there were so many business analyst positions I, um, uh, filled when there was a time where they didn't have those at that time. You know, now data analytics is an area where they're looking to hire or insure tech, fintech. Like there's different business models that grow and others shrink. Um, but you just have to pay attention to your market to know where that little deviation is going to be. Brilliant. Okay, awesome. So then you had this idea of offering what you soon learned was an RPO to a client that was going to be expanding. Um, mm-hmm. Could you just elaborate a little bit on how you structured that? Because that's different. The way you described it sounded different to how I typically would think of an RPO. Um, well, what it, the, they all have been a little bit different based okay. on the company's circumstance. Um, But that first one, the company decided that they were going to go, they were a small mutual company, and they were going to go national. So they needed an an underwriter and a loss control rep in 20 states. So state by state, we found them a candidate for each of those roles. So we built it out. And um, I said, okay, you can pay me, you know, X dollars a month. And every time we fill a position, you'll pay us the balance Mm -hmm. of our normal fee um, once the position's been filled. So, you know, let's say we got $10,000 a month. um, We placed two people. If the fees on them were 20 a piece, then they they had a balance of 30,000 that they would owe me. um, And we would just put it on, you know, kind of a rolling commission where, you know, you can pay me, but, you know, only one a month until all of them were paid. Okay. So I got the first part about the 10K a month and then the balance, but then mm-hmm. you, I don't understand about spreading out the payments over 12 or 18 months. So if we filled those positions over, you know, two months, two yeah. to three months. So the balance was, I'm just going to pick a round number. It was, you know, 300,000. Yeah. Then they would pay us, you know, a 12th of the 300,000 for a period of a year. Okay. All right. Interesting. I've not thought of doing it that way before. So basically it meant you did 80% of the work in the first couple of months, um, but then you got continued getting paid. Correct. You know, for the, until they paid down their balance, but you could go on and focus on other projects in the meantime. Right. Because if you think about it, you know, very often who's approving your fee? It's finance. Of course. And they're like, we don't have a quarter of a million to send out. We're just growing it. But at the end of those 12 months, they're going to be bringing in revenue. Right. (laughs) So, you know, what you're doing is in that, I mean, it's an accounting term, but it's the burn rate, especially for startups, right? They worry about, especially when there's private equity involved, how much money they're going through every month. Yes. So as soon as I would propose we'll work on your positions, but you don't have to pay us all at once. We can divide up those payments over a period of time, the CFO always signed off on it. 
Gail, that is that golden nugget right there has been worth the whole this whole interview. People, I think that's really um, smart to think about how can you help your clients and how can you and your clients both help each other to get through, for example, a, a recessionary period um, and f- come up with a deal that is going to. I mean, I, the term win-win is overused, but that is the definition, mm-hmm. right? Because they were able to spread the payments out, but you also then got plenty of business and you had the the, the security of the uh, monthly retainer as well. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like with money in the bank or money in accounts receivable, I always loved that. Yeah. <laughs> like as long as I know there's a lot in accounts receivable, I feel yeah. safe because you know that 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 cash is going to come in. I never needed it all at once. So brilliant. And the best part about that is if I understand correctly, you didn't reduce your fee. No, nope. Beautiful. Because often when people think of an RPO, they think, okay, it's volume and there's, you know, monthly retainer, which means the Mm -hmm. client's going to expect a lower fee. Right. Mm -hmm. But you're saying it doesn't have to necessarily be the case. Yeah. The lower fee isn't as important as strapping them for cash. Right. Because they can't it. run their business without cash. Yeah, yeah. No, that's brilliant. Um, any other pearls of wisdom in terms of doing well during a recession and um, getting through those tough times, whether it's from a mindset and or a strategy point of view? Um, well, I think that it's always important to jump on it right away. You know, I think many people, no matter what it is in life, right? Um, you, you know, you avoid, you know, some of the hard things because you just don't want to do it. You haven't cold called, you haven't recruited, um, you haven't picked up the phone, or you haven't learned anything new. Um, and you know, you can sit and complain about it with your friends, or you can, you know, just say, hmm. This is the time for me to try something new that I haven't had the time to do um, and, and make myself better. Um, and that that I think is is essential is not just doing the same old thing, but being willing to change, you know, and and evolve. Um, and, you know, that's you know, that was something that I talked about, you know, with you was, you know, when I went to your you know, my first, one of my first conversations with you is, you know, I was starting to talk to everybody about getting older, right? I'm 60 and all my friends are retiring or talking about retirement and exit strategies. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. Like, (laughs) it's just like talking about a recession, right? Like, I'm like, I don't want to do that. I, I, I have too much energy. I just want to reinvent myself and get better versus, um, you know, stick, to, you know, doing what I do, um, or, or exiting or slowly fading away. That wasn't what I wanted in life. Um, and I have so many good role models that I meet at, you know, association meetings and conferences, and it's so inspirational. And I'm like, I don't have to stop, you know, I don't have to just stay home and watch the next Netflix series. Like I could really, you know, expand my mind and get up um, and actually learn what a bookmark is on my computer. <laughs> no. That's a private joke. Gail, yeah. um, <laughs> I love that. I, I'm with you. I just can't actually imagine really retiring completely. Because if you, if you enjoy what you do and you're good at it, why would you just like suddenly arbitrarily, okay, I'm 65 now, so I'm just going to stop and I'm going to what the heck are you going to do with your time if you're healthy, which, you know, touch wood? Um, why well, would Warren you- Buffett has all the money in the world and no one's asking him when he's going to retire. Right. Like, yeah. He still has things to contribute in the world and he's being quoted all the time. Absolutely. I'm not comparing myself to Warren Buffett, but it, it isn't something you have to do. You know, it's um, you can in this business, you can work as much as you want or as little as you want. You can stay relevant in two to three days a week um, and still be engaged with the world or help people. I mean, we really are helping people um, every time we get them a job or we fill a role for them. Absolutely. Love it. That's awesome. Um, I Now, 
you're very involved in a variety of different associations. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk about why that's important to you? Well, it probably goes back to that first meeting with Brian Tracy, right? Like that, you know, I went to, it, that was a national association meeting. And at the time they had tremendous turnout. It was like 2000 people or wow. something. And, you know, I was with everybody that, you know, I, I did really well and I met all these people and it was so inspirational. I learned so many tricks that, you know, every year I had to win the contest to go to naps because, you know, I was like a sponge and there was a state association meeting once a quarter um, and I learned a lot at that too. So I started to, uh, I got on the board of that when I was in my early to mid twenties, because then you get to spend more time with people. Um, and you know, I just stayed on the board forever because I just thought it was so valuable. And when, um, I went out on my own, I decided to start, um, belong to something called insurance national search. Um, and it was not just recruiters, but it was insurance recruiters. And people would say, well, why do you want to associate with your competition? Well, number one, your competition is talent acquisition. It's not your other insurance recruiters. We're all doing the same thing. So we really could talk, you know, genuinely about what areas of the market are hot, what are not. We were all in different areas of the country, but we also like real estate agents, you know, would do splits. You know, I have someone who's moving to California, blah, 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 blah. I got involved in the board on that, became its president. There was another insurance recruiting association. I and another person helped merge those two organizations together. And it's been a big part of my life. I've made a lot of friends um, through it, but we also support each other. You know, when you're in, in, having a downtime, someone might call you up. So I'd always heard about the Pinnacle Society and, you know, seen the panels. And I thought that would be the end all and be all of associations to be a part of. And it was, but I knew I couldn't stretch my time anymore because I volunteered for everything. And that would, Two, two more conferences a year with a young family. So when my son was a senior in high school, I'm like, I think I have the two weekends. So I applied. Um, and, you know, my, you know, someone I knew since we started out together was Danny Cahill, um, who was a big pinnacle advocate. And I got in and then I'm on the board again. It just, you know, that's <laughs> one of those things. Um, but and it to me, it's, you know, it's such an honor to be a part of, you know, the top 80 recruiters in the country um, and get to associate with them and call them and know them or just listen to them. Um, it makes me really proud, you know, to be in their company. Fantastic, Gail. And what is what strikes me about the commitment that you've made to not just join associations and, and um, you know, peer groups, but actually contribute and put, be an active part, join the board and so on. It's a very, um, you're giving a lot as much as you're receiving. And, and, and mm -hmm. I, I love that balance of give, give and take and, and being, having the humility to want to learn constantly, no matter how successful you already are, but also being willing to contribute and share your knowledge with other people. I think, uh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, Listening to podcasts yeah. is great. Um, and I think everybody should do it. Um, and I, but I also think it's for any recruiter that if you don't meet other recruiters and get to know them, <laughs> you know, that's when you really find out what makes someone tick and who can, you know, what questions you can ask. And you learn these like little nuggets that you never get. Um, and it's really important, you know, to associate. And we don't, we don't do that anymore. We're always behind our computer in our house, um, maybe a small office. So if you can get involved in anything where you could, you can meet and learn and get some formal education on a regular basis, you know, once a year, once, you know, twice a year, I would advocate to anyone to do it because, you know, those recruiters that are a part of that would never give it up because they know it's, it's one of the things that makes them grow. That is so cool. This episode is brought to you by Recruitment Entrepreneur. If you've dreamed of starting your own business, or if you've already got a successful firm and you want to grow more rapidly, then pay close attention. Recruitment Entrepreneur are the number one investors in recruitment startups and scale-ups globally. 
They provide everything you need to grow your business, including the funding and financial expertise, operational strategy and back office support, and marketing and talent attraction solutions. Led by James Kahn, they've already invested in 45 businesses and you could be their next joint venture partner. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. That's VC is in venture capital. Book a call with one of their investment directors and be sure to tell them you were referred by Mark Whitby and the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. Are you still offering RPO services or was that just kind of like uh, to, to help you uh- through that difficult period um the no i i've done it when i see the opportunity i don't go out and search for them okay. but the opportunity I'll, I'll hear about it for example you know a client a few years back came to me and he was you know you know disassociated with his company for whatever reason and he was starting another one and he goes i'm going to need some help and and he goes i you know i wanted to talk to you about it and i said hey you know he was telling me how he wanted to build it out and i go why don't we do this I go, I've done it before um, because he couldn't, you know, recruit from any of his, um, you know, his former employees had to wait a year. So I said, I'll fill it all out for you. I'll screen all your candidates that, you know, Um, I'll onboard, you know, and and get the hiring process through for anybody that you're going to refer. And we created a whole different financial schedule. So basically, you know, there were a few days he was working out of my office. Then he got his office space. So I was almost like their de facto HR person. I'd even type up the offer letters so that he didn't have to do it um, and send out the information until he was able to build a staff and hire someone where they didn't need me anymore. That's the hard part, right? You have to um, you have to realize that at some point in time, they don't need you. Mm. You know, they they are, you know, they, they, they become grownups and they forget about you. So you have to, you know, call and say, remember me, let me know how you're doing. How much money do you make now? Um, but, you know, so I do do them when I see the opportunity. I think trying to force someone into the idea, if they're not in the position, doesn't make sense, right? Selling someone a ball gown when they have no balls to go to. Um, but, you know, if you're talking to them about, you know, how's your business, how it's growing, and then you, you kind of hear it. Um, say more it, you can, yeah. about what, cause you have, um, you've explained about spotting the opportunity, but what does the opportunity look like? How do you identify, oh, this would be perfect for RPO? Um, an, a multiple positions that need mm-hmm. to be filled. They don't have to be all the same, but multiple positions that need to be filled in a short amount of time. So for me, that's an RPO. Okay. So how many is multiple? Uh, It it could be for them. Their pain point could be five. It could be 20. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be a staff. It could be a cross country, you know, um, situation where you need to fill a number of different positions in a different place. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we hear about a lot of positions a company has and you, you hop on it and then you recognize they're working with six other recruiters at the Mm -hmm. same time and you really have no chance of filling it. (laughs) Like then you just walk away because the more positions they have, it, if they're going to dilute it to a lot of different recruiters, then you have to walk away from it. But if you can or- orchestrate it and structure it, um, you, in almost every situation though, there was no uh, talent acquisition department. There right. was no HR. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I they needed me because they just didn't want to do all that work that had to be done. Um, as soon as you know HR is built and talent acquisition, then you. A, a lot of your necessity is gone. Um, I, I talk to people who have who work with our POs now, um, and you know if they're do- funneling it through HR, it usually is you know a firestorm at the end because they really are trying to get you out. Mm. Um, you know you want to be in a situation where they need you. Interesting. So minimum of five, but you know, some kind of multiple positions, maybe 20, 40, or however many. And uh, also a situation where you are not competing with, you know, a a bunch of other recruiters and ideally where they don't have an HR department and they certainly don't have a a talent acquisition team yet. That is kind of 
the ideal scenario for you to offer this model? Right. And in an RPO, true RPO, you're you're getting paid for any every position that's getting filled because it doesn't matter if they hire their their next door neighbor Louie. You're still doing the first interviewing, right? Right. <laughs> right? You're still bringing them through the process. So you're handling everything and it doesn't matter if someone applied, it doesn't matter if they know them, mm-hmm. if they've asked you to recruit them or you've cold call recruited them. You're managing that whole process so you're getting paid for the whole process. Okay. So then here's a um when you're getting into this though, do you ever worry like, wow, am I going to be able to fill all those positions or Yes. So t- tell me about that because I think some some people might think, wow, that's such a fantastic idea. I'd love to do that. And other people might think, yikes, I don't know if I would be able to deliver and fulfill all those positions, so I'm not even going to try. And so how do you get over that and put yourself in a position where you do deliver and and not let the customer down? What's involved? What's involved in making sure that you can... Well, that's that attitude thing, right? Mm. Like, you know, that you, like, I can figure this out. I'll do it. Um, Is, you know, you might be given positions you've never, you know, worked on before. It might be in an area where you know no one. Um, And, you know, each time I do it, I have that, you know, you sign it and then you go, oh God, what did I get myself into? Right. Um, And then you just launch into it and you realize it's not really any different, you know, than what you've always done. You just have to make new friends in the process, but we have all the tools in our, in the world to be able to identify candidates with certain backgrounds and you just call them. It's cold call recruiting at its best. Um, and it's interesting because in RPOs, it really is my weak spot. Cause I was always better at business development, but I recognized, you know, especially during recessionary times that getting the best candidates and recruiting them is what you needed to do. So, um, I just, you know, ate that frog, as Brian Tracy would say, and, you know, did the cold calling and called people up. And every single time you make X number of calls and you'll find someone, you make X number of calls and you'll find someone. The hard part is when it flips to a positive economy and the recruiting isn't as important as the business development, right? In a good economy, it's getting good clients and good jobs. So wait a second. Uh, can you elaborate on that? No, actually, let's press pause on that because I still want to know more about your RPO methodology. Did you personally fill all those jobs or did you ever then say, okay, now I know I've got 10K or 20K a month coming in. I'm going to hire a, a recruiter to I did it. deal with that. You did it yourself. Okay. Yeah. Because what- um, I, I, I have a couple of people that worked with me that did all the research. So they were really good, you know, you know, finding names for me to call and structuring it. Um, but I, I, I do all the contact with people. Okay. Cause they expected it from me. So it's interesting cause we have, uh, other, um, clients and friends and guests on the podcast who have their whole, mo- their whole business model is RPO. So they will win the business but then they use every new client as an opportunity to then expand their team. So for example, one guy I'm thinking of is Will Bourne, whose company is uh, Recall. Um, and so he will sign up clients to this uh, RPO arrangement over 12 months or, or longer, but then he's hiring recruiters and they're actually offshore. Uh, often they're in Eastern Europe or other countries to and he's overseeing of course the delivery but he's assigning okay you're the lead recruiter or you're the account manager you're the sourcer and he's putting teams together to make sure that those clients needs are being served and then he's off winning the next rpo um contract so uh, i can see I, i can see the benefit of doing that way but why did you decide just to keep it you know your your yourself well, n- number one is I didn't want to work 40 hours a week. Oh, that's right. Of course. I forgot <laughs> right? that part. So that, you know, building teams and managing mm-hmm. people, that became more complicated, right? right. You, when you're managing a team, that's 10 hours a week right there, you know, of non-productive time, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, depending on the role, like if you were filling 
40 customer service reps, right? That's a certain kind of recruiter. But if you're finding, you know, the executive team, you know, no one should be talking to them but me. <laughs> so, you know, it really is, it really is very different, you know, because, you know, it's, it's pretty confidential and it's a little bit more complicated. So I, I was really more high touch. It, I really felt that there was a trust factor, Got it. um, that they had to, they had to see me. Um, in most of those cases, people thought I worked at the company. In almost every case, they thought I worked yeah. at the company. Yeah, so it was yeah. that kind of closeness. Right. I get invited to the company party. Like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's fun. But well, Let's talk about talent acquisition for a minute because um, for many recruiters, like they're kind of, they're our competition. They're, you know, and, and once companies are of a size that they have their own internal recruiting team, then that's when it becomes problematic working with that, partnering with that client in the optimal way. And a lot of recruiters are like, nah, I'm not, I don't want to get involved in that. But then I speak to other recruiters where that's just the norm. And they're like, yeah, I mean, like um, we partner with, with talent acquisition. And uh, if you work with bigger companies, often you have to, that that's just, if you're going to partner with them, then you, you 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 need to work with with TA. So, what's your philosophy around this? Um, when I work with talent acquisition, I just make it very clear. And I had this conversation with someone just yesterday. Mm -hmm. It was a new client. Someone had contacted me um, because of my LinkedIn posting um, that I'd placed in the past, and they wanted me to fill a role for them. And, um, you know, I had to, have, had to have a meeting with talent acquisition and, you know, they had told me the number of positions I had. And I said, listen, I said, I'd love to fill this position. I said, but when I work on it, I dedicate myself to it like a retained search recruiter. So, um, you know, if anyone else is working on it, you know, I'll take a pass. Um, but if you give it to me, then, you know, I'll keep you informed and let you know when it's filled. Like, <laughs> You know, I'll just take this one off your desk. So, you know, so for that period of time, you're a member of their team, right? That's been assigned the role and then I'll keep you informed to make you look good. So that's really how I um, want it to work with talent acquisition. Now, have I been fooled? You know, <laughs> of course I have, where I thought, you know, that I was the only one on the position. And then, you know, you know, Joe called up the line manager and something occurred. But there's always apologies made um, when something like that happens. But there's a general understanding that um, or an explicit understanding that when I work on an assignment, I'm the only one that's going to work on it and that I, I will do everything I can to fill it. It's been challenging the past year because in the insurance unemployment in insurance unemployment rate is well below the national unemployment rate. Yeah. Um, so we just don't have enough talent to go around. So it, I'm hesitant to even ask for an exclusive because finding candidates is pretty hard. And that's what I mean by flipping the switch to business development. In a really good economy, I have to market the candidate um, because there's so few um, people around that yes. that's, that's got more value. Right, right, right. Of course, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate a little bit, Gail, on when you're setting ground rules for a client engagement, one thing that you require, assuming that you want the exclusivity is they are only working with you. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the other non-negotiables if you're going to agree to take the uh, take the brief? I have to talk to the, I have to work with the line manager themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'll let talent go know what's happening, but, I, and that's another example this week. Uh, you know, they gave me a position. I did this, began the search on it. They said they would sign up, schedule me to speak with, you know, the chief underwriting officer and the HR person got to me. And I, I said, I have like eight candidates I've identified. And he said, okay. And I said, can I talk to the, you know, SVP, you know, about the job? And they yes. said, they don't want to. And I said, okay. And they're like, well, you have the candidates. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> like, I, I know I started the job, but if I can't talk to the person who's going to hire them. Good for I you. I just can't do this search because they, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And how did they respond to that? Uh, not well. <laughs> but did they then change their mind and let you speak to the. Well, that's to be determined. Okay. That's to be determined. We're yeah. still, you know, kind of going back and forth. I'm like, I'm sorry. We're too busy. Yeah. Those are good candidates. I could, you know, I just, 
I have to feel comfortable, yes. you know, with knowing what the job is to have them take their time. And I don't know enough. You're not invested in me and I'm not a vendor. Great. So love it. Any other uh, ground rules that are non-negotiable to work with Gail Otterbert Associates? Honesty. And what does that, what does that uh, entail though? Like, cause everyone's going to say, of course we're honest. Like, wh- but- well, it, it, I guess, you know, the, you know, tell me how, what you like about the person. Tell me what you don't like about the person. Tell me what the department's like. Tell me what the good is, what the bad is. Why did the last person leave? Like, because I'm going to find it all out in my calls. And if I start to sense something that doesn't feel good, you know, my reputation is more important than a placement. Right. So if I send someone somewhere and I'm sensing something that's not good, I have to walk away from that. And you know, and, and I'll protect, you know, the candidate, I'll protect my client from a candidate. Um, but that's the information I think that's really important. When we're putting interviews together and we're scheduling it, we're just trying to get everybody to tell the truth. Tell them really what your experience is. <laughs> tell them really what the job is about because they're going to figure it out when you get together. So, um, you know, just helping them be as transparent as possible. Then you could have a good marriage um, when they work there. It, and that's what is super important. And you don't get that of talent acquisition because they don't really know. They're given the assignment too. It's only when you talk to the hiring manager that they go, well, you know what I really want is so. Absolutely. That was so well said. I loved it. Um, Gail, I, I, I'm curious. Your daughter is also in the recruiting business. How come you guys aren't building the firm together? Why has she got her own separate firm? Well, she started as an accountant in, at a college and, you know, two and a half years later, she got laid off. She was a terrible accountant. She was terrible. And her husband, my husband kept saying, get her to get her CPA. I'm like, no, 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 that's not her. So she started to interview for other jobs and all the recruiting firms wanted to hire her. And Wait, knowing- so she was re- interviewing for accounting jobs and the, and the, the agencies always said, hey, why don't you come and work with us? Right, 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 right. Okay. right. So, um, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't want to hire my daughter. Like I didn't want to have that close association between a family member. Everybody's had an experience where they've hired a family member and it's not been the smartest decision. So um, I encouraged her to go to work for a firm or I'd had her interview for a firm that I thought, you know, that would have good training. Um, and she went there for a couple of years. And what happened is one of her clients approached her on an RPO and she said, no. And I'm like, you know what? You should think about this. Mm. (laughs) Um, just because it was a phenomenal deal. It was a company that was building everything out. Um, and you know, so that's all she's done almost is RPOs. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and, but what type of people does she recruit? Uh, sales, sales cyber sales security. Okay. Interesting. Wow. No, it's so interesting because um, I have clients who, in fact, one guy I'm thinking of, and he's the exact same. His his son has their own recruitment business. And I think Mm -hmm. his, I, I think he has multiple family members, but they all have their own separate recruitment business. And he was just like, you know, I love my son and I, I don't want anything to um, mm-hmm. affect that relationship and w- people, you know, can get upset over business and I just like to keep them separate. But then yep. I also had on the podcast, a previous guest who is a fellow Pinnacle Society member and she, um, joined her dad's recruiting firm and has since taken it over. So obviously that. That could can work. work as well. That was Brooke, Brooke Ziolo. Mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. Brooke? Yeah. yeah. I'm good friends with Brooke. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So so I've, I I guess I've seen both examples, but uh, it's kind of yeah. like there's not a right or wrong. It's a personal. Well, call, to say we don't talk would be silly. I mean, there's a question a day that may come up that she asked me about or vice versa. Um, so, you know, I said that. I, I love associations because you have these friends. Well, there's nothing like having a family member who always right. does it because we could really talk about it. We have to avoid it at the dinner table, right? You know, yeah. when we're all together because everyone else kind of rolls their eyes back and goes, "We have to talk about this right now. It's all business." But um, 
you know, she's, I mean, she's, she's, she's doing phenomenally well. So I'm, you know, I'm really very proud and can't wait to see what she turns into in a couple of years, but you know, she's experiencing the ups and downs of, wow, my God, is this really a recession? You know, they're pulling back jobs and I'm like, don't worry about it. Just ignore it. Keep going. (laughs) Keep going. Gail, on that note, that's a perfect way to finish up the conversation. And this has been so fun. Thank you so much for being on the on the show. And I'm thrilled to and honored to be working with you. Um, so excited to see where that where that all leads. But uh, Gail, this has been hugely valuable. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question. Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview, recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the Resilient Recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who've achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence. They could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you, or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com or feel free to nominate yourself And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.